Vidrio Financial is proud to support Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG and technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg. Vidrio helps allocators harness investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We would like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Shai Davide, a fellow Columbia Business School professor, is kind enough to join us. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. This episode will be slightly more theoretical, though Shai's hypotheses have been borne out in experiments. Uh, the episode will not directly be about innovation and investing ESG and technology. However, we believe our perspicacious listeners particularly asset managers and owners, will be able to extract a great deal of value from Shai's theories. Uh, these theories remind us of other top behavioral economic experts, such as Kahneman and Tversky. We'll start with some background color, then discuss economic inequality, zero-sum games, and how this all may apply to investment organizations, including asset managers and owners, and finish with some advice. On that note, welcome, Shai. Hey, Michael. Let's start very briefly with your background and how you got to Columbia Business School. Uh, well, first, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a, it's a, a very uh, high esteem. So I have been trained as a social psychologist, which means that I am interested in understanding how people behave in the world based on what they think the world is like, or based on the actual inputs that they get from the world. And so I started my career as a professor in a psychology department, but very quickly transitioned into a business school, uh, which is where I am at now at Columbia Business School. Great. And um, let's let's start with economic inequality. It's um, something I studied as an undergrad at New York University in economics. Um, you know, the dominant or the predominant view, I would say, is that there's economic mobility across economic classes in the particularly in the US but i think you might have a slightly divergent view could you shed a little bit of light on that yeah it, it, for me the journey starts around 2015 where i saw uh leading up to you know the presidential election i saw a lot of people discussing things about economic inequality and some people were uh, up in arms against economic inequality other people Uh, seem to be okay with inequality. And it's around that time that I realized that when Americans uh, or where people in the Western world speak about inequality, what they really care about is economic mobility. People mostly do not care about the difference between the rich and the poor, for example. What they care about is whether everyone has a standing chance in this fight to go to get up. Now here's the problem. If you believe in economic mobility, And then you say, well, there's a lot of mobility, so I don't care about inequality. That's fine. That's completely that's a completely uh, rational thing to do. The problem is if you get your views about economic mobility wrong. And that's where our research came in, uh, where we found uh, consistently that Americans tend to overestimate upward mobility. Now, what do I mean by overestimate? Uh, if you just ask people, like, let's say I randomly choose someone, an American from the bottom 20% of the uh, income distribution, what's the likelihood that when they're an adult, they'll move up to the middle uh, quintile, the middle uh, class, or to the top quintile? 
and you get people's estimates. Uh, and then you can compare those estimates with reality. And it turns out that people severely overestimate those chances. So we have overly positive views of how likely you are to move up in life. Interesting. And then I think you might have some interesting thoughts on success and failure in terms of being a function of hard work, because as we Americans like to think of success and failure is highly correlated to hard work. And the harder you work, the more successful one is and vice versa. I think you might have some interesting thoughts on that too. Right. 100%. Right. So, so once we started realizing that people, there's a systematic bias that people believe in upward mobility, we, we started thinking about, let's look under the hood and figure out why. And it turns out that when people think about success in the United States, they have certain attributes that they bring to mind. Now, what does that mean? Uh, when, when you look at someone succeed, anyone, and this could be in the financial realm, but it could also be in sports. Uh, we just had the World Cup, you know, uh, it could be someone getting a promotion, whatever it is. You can make an attribution to that person, what we call an internal attribution. We can say they're very smart or competent. They have the skills. They're very motivated, right? So those are internal attributions. Or we can look at their success and make external attributions, right? So they knew the right people. Uh, they were at the right place in the right time. The system is corrupt. You know, it's their race, gender, whatever it is. Now, of course, those two things can't go hand in hand, right? If you, the more internal you think someone's success is, the less you think it's because of some external forces and vice versa. What we found is that the belief in mobility in the United States is very much a product of the, the, the fact that people make internal attributions of success. So when you ask people in the United States, why are the rich rich, right? Here's a person who's been very rich. What led to their success? More often than not, people say it's because they worked hard and because they were very intelligent, smart, and competent. Well, why are the poor poor? Well, now people flip and they say, well, it's because they either didn't work hard or because they were not motivated enough or did not have the skills. Now, independent of whether people are correct or incorrect, and of course, that's a value judgment, that leads to a problem because we tend to attribute people's success only to them and people's failure only to them. And that's the reasons that we get this overestimation of the likelihood of moving up in society. Got it. Interesting. And then here's another interesting one that I, I believe you've done some work on. Do people have a different view on, on how people earn their wealth versus how they spend it? Yeah. We, we So uh, around 2017 or 18, uh, we started thinking about uh, a very specific type of behavior that you that you notice among the very wealthy, and that's charitable donations, right? So, um, you know, famously, um, there's uh, Warren Buffett started the Giving Pledge, where very wealthy Americans pledge to give at least fifty percent of their wealth to charity by the time that they die, right? And some people, and you can go online and do the Giving Pledge and see what people have pledged. You know, it's they're not forced to do it, but um, the idea is if you make it public, then people hold you accountable. And that's a very, you know, societally, that's a very great initiative. But we were interested in 
what are the side effects of such a pledge or, or such charitable giving? And what we found in our research is that when someone very wealthy gives away their money to charity, gives out a lot of money to charity, people start making internal attributions about that person, meaning they gave so much money, therefore they must have worked hard, right? And when you think about it, this is it's a little bit like people are reverse engineering success. What do I mean by that? Is they look at the outcome, what people do with their money, and then they walk backwards and think, well, if this is what they do with their money, I wonder how they made their money. Now, of course, you and I and everyone, you know, thinking about it rationally, that makes no sense, right? Like I can work very hard, make a lot of money and give it to charity, or I can work very hard, make a lot of money, buy a small island somewhere and, you know, and retire at 40. You know, so it, how you make your money is independent of how you spend it. Yet when people look at you outside observers, the public thinks that how you spend it is a testament to how you made it. So when we, when, and this is a very, very robust phenomena. So when we wrote this paper, uh, we basically had two points that we wanted to make. And for two different audiences, right? From the public's uh, perspective, what we wanted to, the point we wanted to make was don't judge people by how they spend their money. How they spend their money is irrelevant to how they made their money, right? So don't make those attributions, right? So, so you want to be a little bit more clear-eyed in how you think about that. But another aspect, another angle or audience that we were interested in is, is the very wealthy, right? And our research says like, hey, there's a lot of good reasons to give to charity. Here's another one, right? If you give a lot of money to charity, people will think that you're not only a better person, but you're actually a smarter person, a more hardworking person, right? So, so we think there's two kind of like moving, moving targets here. And I think both of them are, are very relevant. So ironically, to your point, it can be used to incentivize greater charitable giving because of this irrational, intangible benefit. One hundred percent. Now, the big, you know, the bigger question is: Is this good or bad for society? And is it a net positive? I'd leave that to uh, smarter people <laughs> to say. But uh, in the short term, yes, right. Like one of the things that people that Warren Buffett, right, is is so known for is two things, right? Being very hardworking. Well, I guess three things, hardworking, smart, and frugal, right? He's very famous for living in the same house. He's very famous for, you know, having a very smart approach to, to value investing. And he's he's famous for like working hard. The, the guy could have retired whenever he wanted, and yet he's still at it every day, right? And while I'm not taking any of that away from him, I've never met the guy, I would love to meet him, but what I'm saying is that one of the things that are leading to this myth is also the fact that he's a very charitable person, giving a lot of money away and thus uh, reinforcing the idea that this is a hardworking person behind the money. Well, you know, if you'd taken Paul Johnson's value investing class at Columbia Business School in 1997, as I did, you would have met him. He came in. It was fantastic. And um uh. He still, you know, actually, he does, he comes on campus with some in some periodically. Uh, he was there a few years ago, pre-pandemic as well. Some of my students told me. So uh, uh, I think I, I think if you make an guy. effort, you can catch him. All right. <laughs>
anyway, joking aside, um, let's let's transition to uh, to zero sum because when you and I first met at, at at Columbia a few weeks ago, it was your hypothesis on zero sum that intrigued me and was the genesis of this interview. So first of all, probably 80 to 95% of our listeners are familiar with zero sum, but just for those that aren't, why don't you give a one-on-one on the concept of zero sum? Right. Uh, I, I'd love to do that. So the concept of zero sum or zero sum games comes from game theory. And I assume most of the audience knows game theory, but basically it's a economic mathematical approach for understanding uh, interactions in multi-party interactions. So two people or more, what is the optimal way for me to behave if you and I have uh, certain incentives? And the idea of a zero-sum game is a game where our benefits are always going to sum to zero. If you win, that has to come out of my pocket. If I win, that has to come out of your pocket. There's no value added, but there's also no value destructed, right? So the prototypical is a game of chess. And that's the economics version. As someone who is trained as a psychologist, what I was interested in is whether people view their life is zero-sum. Not necessarily whether life is or isn't zero-sum. That is a big debate, and that depends on various things and how you look at life. But whether people, when they walk around life, whether they think it's zero-sum, for the very basic reason that it's not the games we play that matter, it's the games we think we play. Right? If you and I are, ga- are playing chess, but you think we're playing checkers, you're going to behave completely different. Right. Yeah. To, look, the concept, and I think you're perhaps, I don't know if frustrated is the right word, but um, y- your view is that society has all too often, at least lately, seemingly seized this notion that so many things in life are zero sum when they're not, not to steal your thunder, but what's the flow with zero sum thinking? Yeah. And I, I think you're absolutely right to say frustrated. A lot of times I get frustrated, right? And uh, I'll give you some examples, you know, so um one example is in if you look at the state of uh politics in the United States right uh we have in the United States a very a zero sum um system where only one party can win because it's all based on the majority right the majority of senate the majority of the house uh, either a democrat president or a republican president right so that's a very zero sum system and it's it's it is objectively zero sum but and this is the important thing while politics is zero sum policies do not have to be zero sum right most policies in the united states are policies that affect both republicans and democrats yet if we approach every policy with this zero sum mentality every dollar that i give to them i lose right if if we approach that with a zero-sum mentality, we're just not going to get to the value-added sphere of creating policies that benefit all of us. Now, ironically, the media perpetrates this, right? Because in 2022, 95% of legislation, legislation in Congress was bipartisan. Meaning that at least one person from the other party voted with, uh, with the either Democrats or Republicans. 
But we don't talk about that. We talk about the small things that are divisive, right? So that's in politics. You get that in um, in intergroup relations, right? So people are saying, if th- if we let this group move up in society, that's going to come out of our pocket. That would come out of our power in society, which is not necessarily the case, right? You see this in discussions of immigration. Now, most economists, I don't want to say all economists, but most economists agree Immigration is a net positive for an economy. Now, of course, when there's immigration, some people lose their jobs, you know, some people, cost of living changes. But overall, immigrants come to a country, any country, they uh, they spend money in the country, uh, they produce uh, goods uh, for cheaper, therefore, immigration is good. Yet, t- people tend to view immigration as zero sum. Let's go to trade. Every economist, all the way back to Adam Smith, the, the idea of trade is that it's completely uh, a positive sum. You know, two countries trade, you get the same thing for cheaper, you import that thing that require, that allows you to now produce your stuff that is in a comparative advantage better than the other country. Both countries gain. Yet people, especially in the past few years, there's been a lot of zero-sum rhetoric, which then leads to tariffs, which then end up hurting the same people that think it's zero sum, right? So you see it all the way in like from very small things, personal lives, all the way to big international trade. And and that frustrates me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. unfortunate. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, I mean, to harken back to uh, my Columbia Business School experience, I mean, one of the first things we learned in negotiating was expand the pie, right? Make the pie bigger, don't think of it as a fixed pie, right? Right. That and that. So I teach negotiations at Columbia Business School, and that's exactly what we tell our students. Because if if you take the idea of zero sum beliefs and you put it into the most smallest interactions, just two people negotiating over something as small as let's buy a car. You're selling your car. I'm buying it from you. It it's intuitively feels like it's zero sum, like. You know, if if you want a thousand dollars and I only pay you nine hundred dollars, you lose one hundred. So of course that feels very zero sum, and and a lot of times those negotiations are zero sum. But what I try to really drill into my students is that a lot of things, if you just look at them a little bit differently, may not be zero sum. So for example, yes, we're arguing about price, and price is going to be zero sum, but maybe you. Uh, have a cash flow problem and you need cash right now. Whereas I, you know, my discounting rate is not as, as high. So I don't mind so much. Right. So maybe you can get benefit from getting cash right now. And in turn, you'd give me a discount. Right. Or maybe we can discuss delivery time. Right. All of a sudden, I want the delivery to be quicker. You want to keep the car for longer. All of a sudden, we can integrate stuff and make this thing that seems non-zero, that seems zero sum, make it into non-zero sum. And I think there's a lot of potential in every aspect of our lives, from personal, professional, politics, all the way to international trade, to just think a bit broader about whether something really is a win-lose situation or not. I think that's great advice for. So again, we I preface this podcast by saying it might be a little bit less directly tied to improving alpha innovation and investing ESG and technology. But again, I mean, this is for any any of the 
asset owners on our call or the um, asset managers, I mean, you know, for almost anything one does, if you only learn from this podcast that, you know, when you think about negotiations as not necessarily zero sum and expanding the pie, that that alone is probably worth listening to this. But um, you, you, you did to um, politics and, and partisan and nonpartisan. Anything else to add on that in terms of biases regarding conservatives or liberals having a zero sum game or? Yeah. So, so one of the things that a lot of times when I discuss this, people used to tell me, oh, you know, isn't it just that uh, conservatives uh, show this bias, right? A lot of times people would say this, right? Because, you know, and, and this is also to put it into context around 2016, there's a lot of discussion on the right side of the politics that, you know, immigration is zero sum, trade is zero sum, uh, stuff like that. And that doesn't seem right to me. As someone who's a behavioral scientist, you know, politics is is a relative new development in our psychology, right? Things like a zero-sum bias, I think is something that has been with us for thousands and thousands of years. So I started looking, again, trying to think more critically about it and realized that, yes, there's a lot of zero-sum beliefs amongst conservatives, but then there are other zero-sum beliefs that are as strong among liberals. So for example, when liberals say the rich gain at the expense of the poor, they're basically spelling out a zero-sum dynamic. Now, again, like, and, and this is the thing, when I talk with my conservative friends, they, they say, yeah, you're right. When I talk with my liberal friends, they say, oh, well, let me explain what I mean. Right? And, and I want to be, and I want to be clear, you know, some aspects of any game can be zero sum, right? When a factory, uh, when a manager of a factory closes down the factory and moves it to uh, a different country and lays off the American workforce, for those American people losing their jobs, their personal experience is zero sum. And I don't want to take away from that. But the act of moving a factory to a different country that then reduces the cost, which then means that consumers have lower costs, right? Which then they're able to spend on other things. On net, that is a positive sum, right? So the problem is that when we focus too much, you know, yes, Bernie Madoff is an example of a very wealthy person who gained his wealth at the expense of less wealthy individuals. But is he really the, the rule some emblematic of how wealth is is created in the US? No, of course not, right? The rich and the poor can gain together, maybe at different rates, what's happening. That's why we have high inequality, but it's not zero sum. Super interesting. Uh, And I don't disagree with almost anything you've said. Let's shift topics to a, a third topic now. Let's tie it into organizations, asset management, incentives, and remuneration. Um. So it's the end of the year and it's bonus time and incentive time. Companies have incentive systems that are um, perhaps suboptimally uh, structured and, and that don't put them on the efficient frontier, as I would say it, or where, where they should be or could be. And and again, this is something that's highly relevant to, I think, asset owners and, and asset managers and anyone listening to this call um, in business or you know with a company or who has some form of incentive system. So I'll I'll let you take it from here. Yeah. So I'll preface by saying every company, every firm is unique, 
right? And and you really have to look inside and see exactly what are your incentive structures, how are things working. But generally, one of the angles for which you can look at things is are you incentivizing people based on a zero-sum scheme or a non-zero-sum scheme? Now, what do I mean by that? A zero-sum scheme is a scheme where you have set a certain amount of resources and you have decided that only a certain number of people will get those resources, right? Based on their performance relative to their peers. A non-zero-sum incentive scheme would be one where maybe you still have the same limited amount of resources, but you have a priori decided that you will compensate each person based on their absolute performance, which means some years, many people will be uh, compensated because they're all hitting their benchmarks. Other years, maybe no one will get compensated. So you'll actually have some sort of negative sum, right? And that's because they're not hitting their absolute benchmarks. And the question is, which one should you use, right? Famously, uh, Jack Welch, GE, uh, put a what they were calling the vitality curve, or journalists would call it the rank and yank system, which is take a worker group, evaluate all people relative to each other, so you can actually rank them from the top performer to the to the worst performer, and then you decide on a certain percentage of the top, and you just get rid of those people. You decide on a certain percentage of the bottom. Uh, sorry, at the bottom, at people at the top, you you bonus. And that is, that's a recursive system. So then people are always on their toes. And what we were interested in, not necessarily does this work. There's a lot of, you know, interesting research on the positives and and the negatives of doing that. But how do people experience these kind of situations? So what we did is we described to our research participants um, in various studies that we've done, these two types of uh, incentive schemes at workplaces, either a workplace where you're evaluated relative to your peers or a workplace where you're evaluated relative to absolute criteria. And we asked people, how, you know, how much would you want to work at this place? And we found that the overwhelming majority of our participants wanted to work in a place where they're not evaluated relative to their peers because they're afraid that these kind of relative evaluations will create conflict between them and their peers. They'll just make for a a hostile and unfriendly work environment. Almost like a zero-sum game. Exactly. And and then we took it even a step step further. We, We asked our MBA students at Columbia, and these are, and I should say, these are students that are interviewing for jobs. We took them exactly at the time of year when they're interviewing for jobs, they're getting job offers, they're negotiating for job offers. And we described a company uh, that had various uh, responsibilities, a role in this company. We told them that uh, the initial offer that they got for this specific role would be $120,000, which is about what our students, that's the low end of what our students can expect when we're graduating. And then we asked them, how much would you counteroffer? What would be your counteroffer? But importantly, we changed one thing. For some of the students, we told them that this is a zero-sum environment. So your performance every year is going to be evaluated relative to your peers. For other of our students, we told them 
that their performance is going to be non-zero sum. So your performance is going to be evaluated relative to absolute benchmarks. So the only thing that differs is what kind of environment, is what kind of incentive scheme do they expect? And we ask them, how much money would you counter for 120? So I want to, I want maybe like a second before I give you the result, just uh, maybe the audience can kind of like think about what would you counter if you got a offer for 120,000? What we found is that when participants imagine this non-zero-sum uh, world or company, they countered with around 140,000. So they said, well, you know, they're going to lowball me at 120. I'm going to go up to 140 and uh, hopefully we'll meet somewhere in the middle. When participants read about the exact same company where the only thing that differed is that the incentive scheme is now zero-sum, they said they would counter with 160,000, meaning that they are willing to work at this kind of company, but only at a premium. Now, for me, what this signifies is that if you mindlessly put an incentive scheme that, uh, that gives out performance bonuses relative to other, uh, other colleagues, you might actually have a hard time attracting talent because you're paying more for that talent. Now, of course, there's other things involved because maybe uh, maybe your employees are so well compensated in the bonus scheme that it, it doesn't matter as much. But I think that the general point here is important, that you want to think about the incentive scheme that you're doing, not just how it affects the performance, but whether it also affects what kind of people you're attracting. Are you attracting the people that are more comfortable with conflict, people that are more self-interested, people that are more, quote unquote, ruthless. And maybe that's the people you want. And, you know, if that's the people you want to attract, then kudos. But if this is something that you just didn't consider, then maybe uh, you might want to reconsider your scheme. It's super interesting. As we prefaced it, um, a great way asset owners, asset managers, and really anyone in business with an incentive system should be thinking about you know, his or her incentive system in terms of making sure it is optimally structured. So I think that's great advice for all of us. I think to me, it seems your some of your advice is clear. Don't think of negotiations as zero sum. Think about expanding the pie. Uh, then think about, you know, how one, your incentive structures are organized and are they optimal and efficient and, you know, placing value on what people value. Um, and any anything else you'd like, you think interesting to discuss or advice for uh, listeners? Uh, I would say this one thing, you know, when I started doing this research around six, seven years ago, um, once you start, you know, there's a, there's a famous saying, you know, uh, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Once you start studying zero-sum beliefs and people's beliefs about the world, you start noticing it everywhere. And I've noticed a big change in my life that when I started, I started seeing it in myself that I have been noticing things that I thought were zero-sum, but actually are not zero-sum. And ever since, I've started thinking about my life, not as uh, what are my goals in life, but more of what is the added value that I bring to the table, in any table, in my friendships with people, what is my added value in my professional uh, career, in teaching MBA students, in doing these kind of podcasts, whatever it is, like, 
what is something that I can bring to the table that leaves uh, leaves both me and the other side better off? And I think ESG investing is a very interesting um, this is a very interesting thing because on you know the whole idea of the stock market. If we take it the very basic stock market without derivatives, without anything, right? Just the idea of the stock market is basically taking something that seems zero sum, which is money, and making it non-zero sum, right? I have money that I that is, that is dispensable income. You have a business idea. You can benefit from getting my money. I can benefit from returns by exchanging that, by creating that, facilitating an exchange. We've created value. And for years, that's how the stock market operated, right? And we've created more and more value. And I think the next frontier is exactly this, the ESG, whereas it's it's more than just, I have money, you have an idea, but also by our exchange, we're also benefiting the world around us, right? So we're creating even more value by choosing the right kind of exchanges. So I, I find it fascinating. I think that in the next 20, 30 years, we're going to see more research into this, more popular interest into this. It's not going to be so much like, how do I make more the most money for myself, but more, how do I make money for myself and the people that I represent, and at the same time, create added value for uninterested third parties that are not in this exchange at all. So, so maybe I'm an optimist, but uh, that's my view. In, I, I, and again, I entirely agree. Um one of our next guests that uh, will be coming on is Tensi Whelan, professor at NYU. Mm-hmm. And um, her research is on effectively, I won't do this justice, but at a high level, it's on showing that ESG can actually add value to companies EBITDA. And so she kind of quantifies the value that ESG can add. And, and then there are all the other beyond just the EBITDA. There, there are all the other intangible benefits like more recycling and lower waste and a healthier environment. And so, there are all these other intangibles. So it's it's more than just the there's the economic value and then the benefits to society like contributing to the UN um, Sustainable Development Goals. In any case, we we'd like to thank you for um you know the superbly interesting discussion and 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 sharing your most valuable asset with us your time we hope listeners have a better appreciation uh how one of the world's cutting edge behavioral economic researchers is thinking and the potential applications to asset managers and asset owners um or as i said multiple times it really any anyone with a business or as as shy said and even applied in personal life um so this is your host michael alver weinberg Hoping you join us again for our next episode, where we'll speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into improving alpha via innovation. And until then, stay well. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG and technology, sponsored by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com.
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.